came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Word of the Lord, thank you for that reading, Lisa. Amen. This is our fourth Sunday of Advent, in which we sort of await the coming of Jesus in two ways. First, the, the, oh, the kids are excused for kids' church. As is a holiday tradition, kid, or kids, there are two, are excused for, the plural still fits, even when there's two. Um, uh, and so we've lit in the fourth candle, we've sort of moved past the candle of joy, and we've sort of come to this place in the season where we move from just thinking about the return of Jesus, this, this second coming into this place, but to sort of taking up this spot and, and sort of preparing our hearts for the, for the first coming of Emmanuel with us, the first coming of God with us. Is it too loud? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Keep talking. Um, when you hear yourself drop like that, it throws you off. Um, but uh, this is a season where we sort of then begin to prepare our hearts for this, for God to take up residency in us, to take up space in us, to come near to us, Emmanuel, God with us, as we heard from the reading. So one of the things we've been talking about during Lent, though, is sort of a little reorientation in who we are as a people. First, there's a physical reorientation that happens in that communion where the Eucharist sort of sits at the center of our service, and so that we sort of come together to be met and be fed by Jesus. That this thing here, being in the middle of us, is supposed to draw our attention there. So it's not about the preacher, it's not about the music, it's not about things, but it's about this ways in which we come together and God feeds us and meets us in this space. And the most tangible example we have of that oftentimes is in communion, but also in the reading and the hearing of the word. Those two things are the places where God can come and meet us. But the second thing we have um, prepared during the season is a time of prayer together. And, and we had a prayer form, which I will update um, as we leave Advent, but a prayer sort of form for us to be practicing prayer on Wednesdays together, whether you can come to the church. There's, there's a small but faithful group of us who come here and pray, but people have been praying at home. I've heard from several people that they're using that form at home, and so I will update it for the Christmas season and for seasons afterwards for us to be able to, the people who pray together on Wednesday mornings together here, but in our, each in our own location. The second way that, that, um, also is taking shape. If you remember back to the psalm series, some of you have been remembering to do it, is praying Psalm um, 122, uh, the Mondays of each week, trying to take a psalm and place it before ourselves as we begin our week as well. 
But in that, I've been sharing a quote about prayer each week. And this one from Herbert McCabe has stuck with me for a long time. It's a little long, um, and so I'll read it to you and you can read along. But I think it, it talks about our tension with prayer sometimes. When you pray, consider what you want and need and never mind how vulgar or childish it might appear. If you want very much to pass that exam or to get to know that girl or boy, boy better, that is what you should pray for. You could let world peace rest for a while. You may not be ready yet to want that passionately. When you pray, you must come before God as honestly as you can. There is no point in pretending to him. One of the greatest human values of prayer is that you face the facts about yourself self, and admit to what you want. And you know you can talk about it this to God because he is totally loving and accepting. In true prayer, you must meet God and meet yourself where you really are, for it is just by this that God will move you on from where you really are. For prayer is a bit of a risk. If you pray and acknowledge your most infantile desires, there is always a danger that you may grow up a bit, that God will grow you up. Last slide. When, as honestly as you can, you speak to God of your desires very gently and tactfully, he will often reveal to you that you, in fact, have deeper and more mature desires. But there is only one way to find this out, to start from where you are. It is no good pretending to yourself that you are full of high-minded aspirations. You have to wait until you are. If a child is treated as though she were already an adult, she will never become an adult. Prayer is the way in which our Father in heaven leads us, each of us, by different paths to be saints. That is to say, to be with him. This prayer quote I came across in seminary a long time ago, and it's always brought to mind to me of how I can often pray for things that my heart aren't really in, and I shield from God my actual desires. But if I want to grow up, if I want God to move me, if I, if I believe that God comes to me as Emmanuel, God with us, and that God desires that we be with him, I have to present to God honestly who I am so that God can do with that what he will. And so as we pray together, <laughs> um, we may not pray these prayers out loud because Christians can be so judgy, even when we try not to be. Um, but we can lay bare our souls to God and what we want and need so that God can show up and move us. It's easy for me to pray for world peace impassionately because I think that's what I should do. But to lay out what I really want before God so that God can meet me there and potentially mature me up or give me what I desire and move me into that space is, is a benefit for me. And if I just keep pretending to God that my prayers are better than they are, I sort of undercut God's ability to change and do with me what he will. And so that's our, we're sort of recentering on communion and prayer for today. But this brings us to the, today's reading. Now, this today's reading, last year I tried to, as best as I could, rescue Mary for us. I think as Protestants we have this challenge with uh, Jesus' mother Mary, the Virgin Mary, uh, the, the one who is blessed among women, because we worry that we'll become Catholic if we, <laughs> if we do too much. Um, and that might be a worthy fear to some regard, but sometimes it keeps us from even using the language for Scripture that, that Scripture uses of Mary. And so I tried my best 
to, to sort of give us a place for Mary in this time during Advent, to sort of see her through Luke's gospel and the words that she has for us, to sort of rescue us from the fear that if we're just more biblical about it, we might become a Catholic. Uh, but this year we have Joseph. Now one of the things that I said last year comes from Pope Benedict, which I realized the spirit of becoming Catholic doesn't go well when I start with a quote from Pope Benedict. Um, but what Pope Benedict said last year about Mary was, is that Mary finds no place in most theologies. Because theology there has become an abstraction. And an abstraction doesn't need a mother. But I think that's equally true for Joseph, is that as for much as our theologies, as our Christianity can be this abstract thing, the role for Joseph falls as well because abstract, abstract things don't need fathers either. They don't need, but when Jesus comes to us, the scandal of Advent and Christmas in the Christian faith is that he truly does come to us through many of the means in which normal people come to us. He doesn't descend from on heaven and reveal himself with no birth process, with no coming into the world. He comes into the world as an infant. He comes into the world and grows up and matures. And the scandal of the faith is that in abstraction, we just take the full grown-up Jesus and not think about the Jesus who comes to us in our humanity. And if we don't allow for Jesus to come to us in his humanity, then we find that he is not helped much help for us in our humanity. He's the Lord of the universe, the creator of all things, but he is not one who has been through these trials and tribulations, faced sin and death the way that we have, when in fact he has. And so rescuing Jesus from that abstraction is one of the things I love doing during Advent, is that Jesus comes to us in many normal ways, as much as the story seems a little off. It's not as off as it may be. But one of the things about this Sunday with that Isaiah reading and this paired together is, is that King Ahaz is told to ask for a sign, and he says, I don't want to ask for time signs. I don't want to test God. This connects to that Herbert McKay quote by prayer in some ways. What Ahaz needs is to be rescued from the two nations that are going to destroy his, but he doesn't want to present that to God or it might test God. Prophet Isaiah says, you're trying God's patience and mine. But I think we find ourselves in that struggle as well. Ask God for a sign. Nah, I don't want to test God. I don't want to risk that. I prefer to do it by myself. That doesn't work well for Ahaz, and it doesn't work well for us either, I don't think. But what Advent and Christmas say to us is that God has provided a sign on his own. Now, I was listening to uh, uh, somebody yesterday talk about this, on how that, that many world religions are about this striving towards God, about this trying to please God, this work of being near God. And what God allows for that, I think, Ahaz asked for a sign, but God also knows that we are weak and we turn away, and so God comes to us another scandal of this faith. We don't work our way up to this God to please them and to make our home with them and to make this work out for us. What God does in his own self is come to a place for us. 
And so we trust in God's coming, in God's work, not in our own work. Ask for a sign, and then it shall be given to you. But this, this reading this morning is about how Jesus came about. And the NIV that I have is, I laughed at this line because it's so, um, it just seems weird that the scripture speaks this way. This is how the birth of the Jesus came about. The birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. It's like a plain sentence. Just in case you were wondering, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. But what I think we lose in, in the English um, and is this word for birth and this genealogy in, this, in the first segment of Matthew. So there's this long genealogy leading up to now that sort of sets David up or Jesus up as the son of David. And then there's this about how the literal birth sort of happened. But the word in, in the Greek is the same word as, as Genesis. It's this origin of what God has done. And it's almost like that in Christmas we find a new creation in this incarnation. That God is re-beginning things. The Gospel of Mark begins with the same language. In the this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ. Is that this is the origin of what is. This is the genesis of how this came about. It's not just, let me tell you a little bit about how Jesus was born. But this is the genesis, the origin of all that is. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, which, unfortunately for us, sounds like she was engaged to Joseph. They were engaged together. Now, Mary at this time is around 14 years old. Joseph would be maybe older than that. Um, we don't really actually know, but she's pledged to be married to Joseph. She's found to be pregnant, and so that's a problem. Now, in our society, you would just most likely end the engagement. Um, if you came to me in that situation as a pastoral counselor, I don't know what I'd tell you to do, but that might seem like a pertinent thing to do if your fiance was pregnant and you knew nothing about how it happened. Um, but more interestingly enough, that in this society, this is more, in older translations, you'll see the word that Mary was betrothed to, to Joseph. But it's more like this, is that for us who are married, you remember when you go to the courthouse and you get the wedding contract, or this is the most romantic part of marriage, is this, and then you sit there with somebody who's too tired and is not that happy about their job often, and uh, they do their best to be happy for all these couples who are like, hey, we forgot about this. How fast can you get this done? Because we're getting married on Sunday, um, or Friday night, or today. Um, I've been trying to do better in my premarital counseling of telling people, you do have to go to this courthouse and get that done. And pray for the people who work there, because I'm sure they get pushed around a lot. Um, but needless to say, and so once you get that contract and sign that contract in our society, you're kind of married already. We have the witnesses and, and people sign it. That's your marriage, right? You can have a wedding ceremony before that, after that, Many times we sign it in the aftermath of the ceremony, but that is the legally sort of binding contract of the marriage. It's also wonderful. Um, what Joseph and Mary are like at this moment are people who have signed the legally binding contract of marriage. They're committed to each other in that sort of extreme way. They are married in this society in so many ways. Married for this next year, which is common in the society, will probably live at home with her parents, and over the course of the year, will move in with Joseph. 
But for Joseph to just say, well, we're, this, something has gone awry, let's break off the engagement and maybe revisit it in a couple months and, and find out what went wrong, doesn't really work that way in this society. They would have to legally break the marriage. And what scripture tells us is that Joseph being righteous, now there's two, there's actually three ways you can sort of work this out. My favorite one, which I was not familiar with, was, um, I thought it was a little funny, was that Joseph had somehow was found out that she had been made pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and because that is so holy and awesome, he doesn't want to live near that, because in the Old Testament, that doesn't go well living next to things that holy and awesome, so he decides to break it off. Doesn't fit the story, he finds out later from an angel, but I think that's a way of sort of rescuing Joseph a bit. The second, which I think is more pertinent to the time, is Joseph is being a righteous person concerned for the law of God. It wouldn't really work for him to stay a righteous person and marry somebody who's pregnant. They would either say, okay, well, you guys seem to have violated. This, and during this time in first century ancient Near East, um, you couldn't actually um, be alone. You shouldn't actually be alone. The spouse, Mary and Joseph, shouldn't be alone. So. If he were to continue with this, it would raise a lot of questions. How did this come about? Um, you guys are supposed to be a righteous and good at this time, yet somehow she's become pregnant. This would put a wrench in the plans. Um, so Joseph, being righteous, caring for God's law, decides that it must be ended. And this brings us to the third sense in which he is righteous, is that according to Deuteronomy, Mary can actually uh, receive capital punishment. She can be put to death. Now, there is no evidence that in first century Israel, the Jews had the right to put people to death like that, or it was even a possibility. But being concerned for the law, he could dismiss her in a show. He could dismiss her and defame her in the process. He could put her to shame as it is said in the Bible. He could dismiss her and send her away, which makes her look horrible and him look righteous. But the third sense in which Joseph is righteous is he decides to do this quietly. He decides to do this without the show of shame and disruption upon Mary. He decides to, to do this in a way that um, gives her honor to some degree. And so he intended to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. This angel appears to Joseph, and the first thing I love that he says is what angels always say is, don't be afraid. In this instance, it's don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Don't be afraid because God has arranged this. And this is when I tried to rescue Mary, and Mary, like we sing songs, Joseph doesn't really say anything. So it would be hard to sing something that Joseph said, not having said anything. He's um, a very quiet one. He's quiet type, as Mary's mother is saying to her. He's a very quiet guy, peculiar. Um, but uh, uh, when we try to, to sort of give Mary the honor that we would give to somebody like Moses or David. Um, not, not much more than that, but to, to sort of have her words resonate within us. Joseph being righteous hears this word and doesn't. 
He's one who hears from the angel what he is to do and does it instantly. He's the one who has God meet him in dreams and goes to that thing. Now, part of the way this begins and ends, and I want to talk about the two names of Jesus um, in a couple minutes, but um, Jesus is going, or he asks Joseph to name him Jesus. In this society, there was this thing in which when the men claimed, named the son, they sort of claimed the son. That they said, this is my son in some ways. And so what Joseph is being asked to do is to go through this as if it is his own child. It's not just hang around, um, begrudgingly put up with this. It's not um, trust this random angel. Um, it's not... Uh, a call to just sort of go through the motions. What it says is that you are to name him as such. It's not a name that you will choose. This is this obedience and righteousness that Joseph seems to, but it's a name that he is given by this angel. And all this took place to say that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God's with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This third way, or fourth or fifth, if you're keeping track, uh, point C. We haven't used letters yet. I love it when people go point A, B, and then they go to three for some reason. Anyways, um, another way in which this story is preserved for us is that Joseph going home with Mary doesn't say... <coughs> And marrying her doesn't say, well, this is us now. We should consummate this marriage. But knowing that something is going on, something bigger and beyond, they wait until the child is born. They decide that this is not for them to just take up and start married life together. But there is a time in which God has sort of commanded them to stay apart. They don't go home and consummate instantly thinking that this will solve their problems, but they wait together. When he gives birth to a son, they give him the name Jesus. This is sort of the story as we have it preserved for us. But the one thing I wanted to take a little bit of time to talk about as we close this sermon is to talk about the two names that were given for Jesus. The first one is Jesus. And Jesus, first off, is like the Bob of this area of Israel. Um, it's a very, very common name. So much so that there's another zealot who tries to overthrow Rome in, within 100 years of Jesus' birth, I forget which way, and his name is Jesus. Um, Jesus, not being a zealot, doesn't want to get confused with this Jesus either. But Jesus is this very common name, but what it means is that God saves. Yahweh saves. And so the name, these two names, the first one, they describe the person and sort of the work. He is the person of God saves. Now this is, in English, if we translated the Old Testament name, this would be similar to Joshua, too. And I love that because what does it say in, in the, the Isaiah reading for days? That the two enemies after this child grows up will be gone if Ahaz takes the son. Jesus comes as this one who is like a Joshua, too. He's a deliverer. He brings people into the land. He is one of conquest, too. Jesus is one who saves his people. But what we saw patterned in the Old Testament is that these people saved themselves 
from flesh and blood enemies, people who are making Israel's life hard. So this is, and if you were to, to, to think about this as we think about it now, is that um, you shall say, name his, you shall name him God saves, because he will save his people from their sins. Saves plays out there twice. You shall name him God saves, for he shall save his people from their sins. As we've walked through the Torah, one of the things we've tried to, to talk about is as God rescues Egypt from the slavery, or God rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt, God too rescues us from our slavery to sin and slavery to death. God moving from Israel as his people to his mission in Jesus takes the bigger problem on. The problem isn't the Egypts, it's not Assyria, it's not these things. The problem is the greater problem of sin and death. And, it, and I love the way in which it says here, because it says that, that first, um, because he will save their people from their sins. Sometimes I think Christians have this tendency to think God moves into individualism with Jesus. He goes from rescuing a people, a nation, the holy ones called by him, to individuals who happen to confess Jesus as Lord. What actually happens in Hebrew, or in, in this scripture, um, is the same thing that happened. God is creating a people again. God certainly saves individuals, but he saves individuals. He calls them out, ecclesia, church, as we get later in Matthew, to be a part of a people. Their being saved from sin isn't just for you to have perfect salvation on your own, but to join up. Now, this, if you're thinking, Matt, is the definition of preaching to the choir. Here we are today, together, worshiping. Yes, true, I guess. But it is important for us to remember that God calls us out as a people the same way he calls Israel out as a people. And a people who have been freed from sins, from sin, the distortion that mars all of humanity, the way in which we tear one another apart. It's, it's this thing that begins in the Genesis as well. It's the thing that has been hovering over God's people and their relationship to other people nonstop from the beginning. And yet Jesus is this one, God saved, who comes to save them from that. But the two enemies, I think, in Isaiah, if we take that as Emmanuel, Jesus, God with us, is these, these enemies of sin and death who God has come to save us from finally. And I think we've talked about it before, but if we properly think about it, sin and death are the reasons on why we do so many of the things we do that tear each other apart. Those are sometimes the ultimate drivers of whatever you may want to blame, whether it's jealousy, um, gossip, murder, I think oftentimes when we trace those desires back up, we find out that they live in the place of sin and or fear of death. And God comes to rescue us from both of those. So if the person, if the first name describes the person, the second name does more to describe the work, is that he becomes Emmanuel, God with us. Now, what's great in Isaiah is it's singular, is that you will call him Emmanuel, but in uh, what Matthew does when he takes that passage is he says, 
we, they shall call him Emmanuel, God with us. The people shall call him Emmanuel, God with us. And so this is the name of Jesus that comes to us. He becomes God among us. This is where that abstraction that we talked about at the beginning of the sermon can end. God comes and is with us in his humanity. God doesn't sit on the sidelines and solve this problem, but becomes this one who is Emmanuel, God with us, and they shall um, see in him this glory. This is, in Matthew's gospel, it stretches out to the end of the gospel, I'm with you even until the ends of the world. There's this powerful phrase in here, this with phrase. God is with us. God is with us to the ends of the world. There aren't many things in life that are like that. There aren't many things in this universe that are like that. And yet in this gospel word, in this work of what God is as Emmanuel, is he is with. So when we present ourselves in prayer, when we come to the table, when we see Jesus in the works that we come and do together as his people, God is with us in even till the end of the age. But this I have never reversed. There's, if you if you come to Christmas Eve, and many of us travel even more so, so that's always fun for me, I always have this phrase that I like to say on Christmas Eve, is that the wood of the manger is the wood of the cross. And I always try to say that the reverse is equally true, that you could say on Good Friday that the wood of the cross is the wood of the manger. That by God becoming God with us, um, this whole act is undertaken. We try to divide it out into this is his life, this is his birth, this is his atonement, this is how this works. But it's actually one corporate act of God's intervention in the world. But the thing that had never occurred to me is that the, that the reverse of this is really the mission. Jesus comes to us as a human, lives that life, as God here on earth, so that we can participate in God, so that we can be with God. God with us becomes us with God in its fulfillment. God intends to build a community of people who are with him. We with God, when we say God with us, it proclaims that God himself has taken our place, that he himself has made peace between himself and us, that by himself he has accomplished our salvation. Jesus saves. He's accomplished our salvation. And now we have our participation in him. We, through Jesus' incarnation, through his life and death and resurrection, become participants in what God is doing in the world. And not just as individuals. But God is making a people and these are words I love to use, to be a sign and a witness to God's kingdom coming to earth. A people who can forgive each other their sins, we pray the Lord's Prayer. People who can share among each other non-competitively. A people who release deaths and proclaim freedom to the oppressed. The people who see the coming of this new age, it was two Sundays ago we had 
that line from Dion the Baptist, which Jesus also prepares his ministry with, is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For us to be a people who turn from the ways of the world and participate in God is to move into the kingdom of heaven. And so it is for us not just to see Jesus as the one who saves us from our sins, not as just the one who is God with us, but the one who intends also to be restore us to the image in which we've lost, to bring us back into communion and fellowship with God, so that we too can witness to this brain the way that Jesus does. Let us pray together. God, we thank you for your servants, Mary and Joseph. Through the work of your Spirit and their faithfulness, we received your Son. We received Jesus, God saves. So too also in that we receive Emmanuel, who is God with us. This is the time, this season, when we prepare ourselves. The response of Mary, behold, or um, uh, she's storing these things up inside ourselves, and through the righteousness of Joseph, imitating that as well, sticking through and seeing what God is about to do in the world. That we hesitate to ask for a sign and so it was in your wisdom to provide us with one in your son, Jesus. Prepare our hearts to receive that sign, to see that sign, and to become, through that sign, people who are with you. We ask all this in the name of the Father, and the Son.